Good morning, church family. It's good to be here with you this morning. Hope that you're all having uh, just a wonderful start to your morning and your week. And we're just glad to be able to worship together this morning. I'm going to start things off with just uh, a few announcements, uh, a few things that are going on that you should be aware of, and then we'll go ahead and move on into our time of worship. Uh, First of all, we do have our second drive-in worship tonight, uh, which the first one, if you were able to go, uh, was just such a blessing, and we would love to see even more people if you're able to be there tonight. Um, It is at 7 p.m. in our back lot, and all we ask really is that um, if you want to come and sit outside, you know, bring a lawn chair, we ask that you would please wear a mask and that everyone outside your household would uh, social distance with each other. Um, but get ready for a time of scripture reading, of singing together, and we'll have a short thought as well. But since it's a drive-in style, you can come and park in your car. And if you need to maybe stay a little more distant than others, you can easily just stay in your car, keep the windows up, tune the radio to the right station, and you'll be able to hear uh, everything that's going on. And so uh, we're really excited for that tonight. Again, it's tonight at uh, 7 o'clock. We really hope that you'll be there. It looks like the weather should be pretty great for tonight. Um, Also, tomorrow is the deadline for registration for our VBS. So again, if you've been maybe a little hesitant to register for that, uh, today's the day or tomorrow. Um, That way we can know how many kits we need to make. And um, if you miss the deadline and you still want to be a part of it, just make sure you reach out to Norma so that she knows uh, to be looking for you. But we're getting really close to that, and we're really excited um, to be able to do something this summer to bless the kids in our community. So make sure that you've registered for that if you haven't yet. Um, I think that's pretty much all the things that we have for right now. What I'd like to do is just read a short uh verse of scripture from Psalm 27, and I'll, I'll, I'll pray and then we'll move into our time of scripture reading. This is from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Let's pray together. God, as we come together this morning and uh, we seek to come into your temple, Um, Though we might be more scattered than we would like, uh, we are united behind uh, just a common purpose to worship you, to give you the honor and glory. And God, I just pray that you would be with us as we lift up your name and uh, help bring us together in this moment. Uh, Help strengthen and encourage us. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Good morning, church family. Today's reading is from Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head were a crown of twelve stars. 
And she was with child, but she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And in his tail swept away the third of the stars of heaven, and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she might be nourished for 1,260 days. May God bless the reading of his word. Good morning, everybody. Uh, we are continuing in the book of Revelation today, and I want to thank John Germain for providing our reading and Kyle for uh, getting us started off today. Um, I want to be upfront with you. Today's sermon is going to be a lot of um, symbolism, a lot of talk about uh, biblical numerology, which may not sound particularly exciting to you, but uh, uh, bear with me. It serves a really important part in understanding the passages that we are covering today. Uh, I've bitten off a particularly ambitious section of scripture here. Uh, Kyle and I were talking about it. I took uh, chapter 8 through chapter 14, uh, which if you look in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of stuff that happens here. Uh, but I want to tell you, we're not, we're not going to get too in-depth in any of this, partly because uh, I want to I paint a broader picture. Um, and I'm hoping that you are uh, reading through these passages yourself. Uh, I really want to encourage everybody, reading the book of Revelation for yourself is an important part of understanding the overarching story that's being told in the book. Um, I've been doing some readings that I record on Mondays, and they go up sometime Monday, uh, that anticipate the reading for the overall scripture that we're going to cover on the coming Sunday. Um, I've also encouraged everyone maybe sit down and take a couple of hours and read all the way through the book of Revelation out loud, maybe with your family uh, or independently uh, by yourself. And uh, maybe, you, I don't know, you get together and have a Revelation reading party or something. Uh, there's a lot to be said for reading these passages as larger chunks and reading the book as a whole. Um, when we break the book down into smaller sections, sometimes we miss the bigger picture because we get caught up in the details. That said, today we're going to get caught up in a few details, and uh, I promise by the end we will look a little bit more at the broader picture. So, up here on your screen, uh, you are going to see um, some introduction slides to uh, the story as it's happening. In chapter, uh, chapter 8, we have the seventh seal opened, and there is what I'm going to call the grand pause that happens in heaven. If you are um, a music nerd, uh, Michael Rooney, I'm looking at you, um, you know what a grand pause is. It's this moment in music. It's a piece of notation that tells you everything here stops for an undetermined amount of time, but it's, it's longer than a single rest. It's intended to be up to the interpretation of the conductor of a song, how long this pause is going to last, but it's intended to create suspense over what comes next or to create a sense of uneasiness or a sense of excitement about what may be happening in just a moment. Um, sometimes when the composer of a song 
wants to emphasize that this pause should be an extended pause, they'll also add what's called a fermata over it. And um, if you had elementary music classes, you probably heard of the grand pause being called the railroad tracks, and you heard of the uh, fermata being called the bird's eye. So you have a bird's eye and railroad tracks to tell you that this is an extended pause and that it's less up to the conductor how long this pause should be because the, the composer wants you to understand that this is a significant pause. It's, it's lengthy. And as I said, it's intended to build anticipation. So in chapter 8, starting in verse 1, we read this. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. We've read about this worship that's happening in heaven, about the the continual singing of the praises of the one who sits on the throne and of the Lamb, Uh, that that these hymns just pour out of the angels and the elders and and the host of heaven in general. Um, And suddenly, on the opening of that seventh seal, I'm going to bring a prop back from last week, that seventh seal, there is silence, which is not obviously the natural state of heaven, as we've been told up to this point, which means something significant is about to happen. And when he opens the seventh seal, the the whole of heaven is still and quiet. And then it says, then I saw the seventh angel, or the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake." In uh, Protestant Christianity, we don't use censers very often. These, uh, these things that would be swung that would basically move the incense through an entire room. It's uh, not a common thing for us, especially in the churches of Christ, to use. There are, there are groups that we would call maybe high church groups that still do. Uh, and it's intended to create an atmosphere that reminds us of the throne room of God in a lot of ways. This this uh, smell that permeates the room, the smoke that reminds us of uh, the offerings on an altar, because we don't offer offerings on the altar. It, it's something intended to create an atmosphere and a sense of worshipfulness, but also a sense of the reminder of the judgment that God has for the things that must be judged. And so we have this angel that's swinging the censer, and we have this moment where the censer is thrown down onto earth, and it's filled with fire from the altar. If you read Old Testament prophecy, what you see over and over again is that fire is used as a metaphor for purification, that it's used as a metaphor for taking something that is impure and making it pure, uh, removing blemishes uh, when... when um, When we read about fire, we should understand that fire is both uh, a terrifying thing in the sense of judgment. It is destructive, but the destruction comes with purification. And that's the image that's being offered here. It's not just any fire either. It's the fire that comes from the altar of God. So, we've read about a whole bunch of 
things that happen up to this point, and I've mentioned a couple of times that the book of Revelation kind of acts like a bunch of uh, nesting dolls, and as you open one nesting doll, you find inside of it the next nesting doll. And we've reached the point where we have reached a second set of seven uh, in this vision that John is having of things that are happening in heaven. There are seven messages to the church. There are seven uh, uh, seals that are broken on the scroll. And now there are seven trumpets that are sounded. And in these trumpets, a number of things happen that to our eyes and ears seem very strange and peculiar. But I want to I start before we look at any of these by giving you your course in numerology. Uh, numerology just means the study of numbers, but specifically, in the case of the Bible, the study of numbers as they relate to symbolism. And so we're going to move through these really quickly. I don't want to spend a lot of time on them. I want to give you these as a tool for your own reading of the book of Revelation. The first number that we have is the number three. Uh, the number three in the ancient world, even outside of Christianity and Judaism, is considered to be a divine number. Um, if you take a look in scripture, you're going to see over and over again that three and God are kind of associated with one another. Um, it's often used in what we call tripartite formulation. It's, it's any time that God is described in three ways. And so in the book of Revelation, we see this happen multiple times. He's often called who was and is and is to come. Um, in the Old Testament, this is a, a really common thing to do towards God, to describe him three times or to use three descriptors that all are similar but not entirely the same. A lot of scholars believe that this is in many ways a foreshadowing of our understanding of the Trinity, the, this tripartite formulation. We believe, of course, that God is himself a Trinity. God's self is three persons and one being. It's, it's that indescribable and unfathomable mystery of the Trinity that we embrace, that God is so beyond our understanding that even his very nature as three and one is difficult for us to understand. But this idea of three, uh, oftentimes when you see it in the book of Revelation, is an association with God himself. Uh, the next number that I want to look at is the number four. This is a number that's associated with earthly or created things. Um, in the ancient world, they would have talked about the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, west. Uh, they talk about the four winds, the north wind, the south wind, the west wind, the east wind, and the ways in which they blow. Uh, the four corners of the earth, uh, the four elements, earth, water, fire, sky, uh, and the four seasons, summer, fall, winter, and spring. I almost messed up my four seasons there. Uh, the number four, oftentimes when we see it in the book of Revelation, is intended to draw our mind to something that is created, a part of the earthly order. Uh, in addition to that, we have the number seven, and this is a number that I think most of us are really familiar with. It's the number of fullness or godliness. Um, there are seven days in creation. That's the completion of creation. There is rest on the seventh day. That is something that we're supposed to understand as a, a part of embracing God's character in ourselves, resting on the seventh day. Um, there are seven letters. 
seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls that all appear here in the book of Revelation. And each one of these is something that God is responsible for. God is responsible for the letters to the seven churches. He is responsible for the seals that go on the scroll. He is responsible for the trumpets that will offer judgment. And he's responsible for the bowls that will be poured out on creation and on the things that need to be judged. Um, the number seven is also occasionally used to show in the book of Revelation when someone is t attempting to emulate God, uh, trying to, to maybe claim God falsely or claim Godhood falsely. Generally, though, when we read the number seven, we're supposed to associate it with godliness, with God himself, or with completeness and full, excuse me, fullness. Um, the next number that I want to look at is uh, the number 3.5, three and a half. This occurs multiple times in the book of Revelation. It's the number of limit, that the, this is not something that is complete or full. It's something that's partial. Um, it's half of seven. So if seven is the number of completeness, then 3.5 is incomplete, right? Three and a half is incomplete. And we see this specifically applied to a number of things that are periods of time in the book of Revelation. Um, we'll see it used to de describe um, the, the period of time in which an individual is sequestered away for uh, protection, specifically. Um, the phrase, a time and times and half a time, that's supposed to be three and a half years, a time being a year, times being two years, and a half a time being a half a year, so three and a half years in total. Also, 1,260 days is roughly uh, half a year, or uh, three and a half years, rather. And so um, when you see those numbers, what you're supposed to understand is that John is telling you about a thing that happens for a period of time, but has a limit. It comes to an end. These are not intended to be literal specific times or periods of time. They're intended to represent a period of time. Um, so if you read three and a half years, it doesn't actually mean three and a half years, which seems counterintuitive until you understand the way that people thought in the ancient world about numbers and how they represented uh, different ideas. The number six. Number six is the number of imperfection. So it's not just a number of limitation, but it is imperfect. It is something less than seven. If seven is the divine number, then six is a perversion of the divine number. It's something that falls short of godliness. It falls short of fullness. It falls short of completion. It might even be removing something from a good thing and making it less than it was before. Uh, so when you read the number six, it should be a red flag to you that something is less than God's intention, or it's even bad. Uh, what, uh, what we would have talked about in uh, the book of Genesis as raw, uh, bad in the sense of evilness or wickedness or brokenness. Uh, continuing on, uh, the number 12. Uh, the number 12 is one that pops up all over in the Bible. When we read that number, it should be something that we immediately recognize. It also symbolizes completeness or fullness in kind of a different way. Not in a godly completeness or fullness, but in um, the representation of a whole. 
uh, we have the 12 tribes of Israel. We have the 12 of Jesus' inner circle, the, the uh, ones that would end up becoming the apostles. We have the 12 signs of the Zodiac. This is not something that's a biblical thing. In the ancient world, 12 was considered a number of completeness because it was associated with the Zodiac. And also with the 12 months of the year, which by the time Jesus had rolled around uh, in, in the incarnation, uh, there were an established 12 months in the year and had been for several hundred years, um, up from 10 before that point. Uh, so when we read the number 12, we're supposed to see it as all-encompassing, whole, complete. If you remember last week, we talked about the 12,000 that are called out of each tribe uh, to become a part of this, this holy army, the 144,000. Um, that multiple of 12, 12 times 12, 12,000 times 12, is also supposed to represent the completeness, not just of a people, but of all peoples. Um, so multiples of 12 are significant. They're important. We're almost through, I promise. Uh, taking a look here, we also have this number that is one-third. Um, and this is one that's going to play really big into the, 12, uh, the, the seven trumpets that we end up seeing today. Um, it means a truly significant portion of something. Not all of it, not even necessarily most of it, but a significant portion of something. Um, in the trumpets that we see today, we see the destruction of a third of the trees, a third of the earth, a third of the sea, a third of the creatures, a third of the rivers, a third of the heavenly lights, a, a third of mankind are all harmed or afflicted or destroyed in some way. And it's important for us to understand that we're not being told literally a third of humanity dies or a third of humanity is afflicted or a third of all the trees are burned up. A not insignificant portion of these things are afflicted or destroyed. When we read about these judgments, these, these, these things that happen within the world, these uh, uh, cataclysms that we might call them, we're supposed to understand that they are significant moments, that they, they are real, true harm. Uh, to do less than a third of the damage might be to undersell it and say that it's uh, uh, not a big deal in some ways. Uh, to, to do two-thirds damage would describe something that is um, nearly complete, and to do a full destruction of all things is not the message that's intended to be conveyed. A third just tells us that these are truly cataclysmic moments. They're large-scale events. And so uh, we have the first trumpet, and uh, we see fire and hail, and mixed with blood, these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up. So a third. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet. A great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And it, it ends up corrupting those waters. It ends up corrupting uh, the, the way in which they interact with mankind, and they drink from it. Uh, mankind drinks from it. A third of them do. Um, and it makes, it makes not just the taste bitter, uh, but it kind of makes them bitter, and they die. Uh, the fourth angel blows his trumpet, a third of the sun 
is struck, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, and the blasts of the other trumpets the three angels are about to blow. And so we have these cataclysmic events that happen, these thirds that uh, occur, and then there are still three more trumpets left to blow. A star falls from heaven, and it, it, is, um, it is supposed to represent the falling of a, a spiritual being, a creature, uh, that is given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Okay, these, these next several trumpets tell us about some kind of occurrence in which uh, the spiritual realm is lessened, it's fractured in some way. And this, this star falls down and things begin to go badly. Humanity cries out for death. People seek death. Um, there are locusts that appear. There is battle that's waged. There is um, the, the name Abaddon and Apollyon uh, are thrown around. These terms that are supposed to signify to us um, scary spiritual forces in some ways. Uh, then we have the sixth angel that blows his trumpet. And there's a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And they, they go and they do their job. Um, it, it's, it's this unleashing of a heavenly plan in some ways. And yet they've been held back for a period of time. And now they are allowed to go and do what it is that they have been called to do. Um, there are plagues that are sent on mankind. Uh, fire and smoke and sulfur. And then the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot be seen or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So we have this, this section that leads up to this point. And I want you to think about what we've heard. We've heard about um, most of creation suffering cataclysmic loss, being uh, ruined or corrupted or destroyed in some way. And oftentimes I think we read this and we, we have the sense that God is doing these things, uh, that God is causing some kind of mischief or trouble in the world. But I think if we read this carefully, what we actually end up seeing is that this is essentially God saying, your world operates like this. It is a third less than what I intended for it to be. It is less perfect than my intention. In so many little ways and great ways, major ways, it is broken. Death and destruction and plagues and all of these things exist in your world as the result of a fracture, of a break. And it's, it's easy for us to look at this and maybe even think that it's talking about a time in which these things will happen. But as I've said before, 
something that we see in the book of Revelation is that this is not just about something that will happen. It's about something that has happened and about something that continues to happen, ongoing. Um, Our world continues to experience plagues. It continues to experience trouble and torment. It continues to experience disaster and catastrophe. And we can read the book of Revelation with the understanding that, yes, a time will come where these things will happen and it will be the last time that they happen. But we can also read the book of Revelation in light of the understanding that these things continue to happen and it doesn't diminish God's justice and God's intention to set things right. See, the book of Revelation operates in cycles. Uh, We've talked about the idea that that we're going to see the same story unfold multiple times from multiple perspectives. And here, in chapter, uh, chapter 10, we are given this moment where we're reminded that all of this is happening in kind of a stage because the author is drawn back into the story himself. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a little voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter, and I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Notice what happens here. First of all, we have a throwback to the Old Testament prophets who are often told things like, eat this scroll that I'm giving you, which sounds strange to us. It's this idea of taking into himself the message that he's been given. And it's, it's sickening to his stomach, but it's sweet on his tongue. Uh, it's, it's a strange metaphor, but it's intended to say that this message belongs to you now. You have incorporated it into yourself, and what you share must be about this message from here on out. Um, it's a part of his identity at this point. And in many ways, it's supposed to represent that this story that we are being told is in fact a part of our identity part of our makeup, a part of who we are. Um, this, uh, depending on the, the author that you read, um, is a smaller version of the seven sealed scroll. And John is being told to incorporate all that he's seen now into his teaching to the community, not only to write this down, but also to speak about it, 
to share about it, the good news that is to come, that God will not delay. I don't know if you heard those words as I was reading it, uh, but he specifically says that he will not delay. And that's important for us to remember. Kyle read uh, this morning about the idea of not fearing. Um, When he introduced the book uh, several weeks ago, we talked about this idea of fearing not. And if we read chapter 8 and 9 without reading chapter 10, it can be fearful, fear-inducing. It can be a little bit scary. Uh, And we wonder, why is there this grand pause? Why is everyone building up anticipation for what's about to come if what's about to come is destruction and, and fire and death and the, the degradation of all creation. As these trumpets are blown, we see these things happening and our hearts are stricken. Why would we pause in anticipation for that? Well, it's not about the first six trumpets. It is a reminder that, again, this is in many ways what our world is. It's what it will be. It's what it has been in the past. But there is another trumpet to come. There is something more on the horizon. There is something that God has been working out and planning and set into motion long before any of these other things had ever happened. They were sealed up. And there are two witnesses that appear. Two is significant as witnesses go, specifically because you had to have two witnesses in the Jewish system in order to have uh, authority uh, in the testimony that's offered. And these two witnesses, they offer their testimony. They, they preach about uh, what is to come. They, they are um, exciting figures to us. They die, and then they're resurrected. They're, um, you know, these enigmatic characters. We're to understand them, though, as people that are bearing witness to the thing that God is going to do and calling for the repentance of humanity. And they may be stricken down, but they don't remain dead. That's significant. Those who bear witness about Christ, about God, about the redemption of all things, whatever harm befalls them, God will rescue them from. And now we reach the seventh trumpet. This is in chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seven angels blew, seventh angel blew his trumpet, And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. See, this is the problem. Sometimes we read those seven trumpet sounds, right? And we read these destructions that happen and we attribute them to God. But I want you to notice what is said here, that God will destroy the destroyers of the earth. These cataclysms that happen... They are a part of history. They happen. God has allowed them to happen, but he did not bring them on the world himself. If we don't read the whole book, it's easy to build some bad theology. And I think a lot of people have not read 
the whole book and they look and they say God is a vengeful, wrathful God. It's true. God has wrath. But up to this point, we've been told that there is a story that is happening in our history, a story that happens today, a story that will continue to happen until the seventh trumpet is blown and God enters into the world and he takes what's corrupted, his good things, and he puts them to an end. That's what they're worshiping him for in heaven. His grace, his mercy, the thing that he will do in order to set right what's been made wrong. Things that have been allowed to happen in the past will be brought to an end. And in verse 19, it says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And so you have all these these same symbols that have happened before in the book of Revelation, where you have hail and thunder and and, uh, heavy hail, earthquakes, rumblings, flashes of lightning. All these things have occurred before, and now they're occurring at the revelation of God's covenant. The Ark of His Covenant represents to us that God's promise is present, that it's real. Remember, we had the rainbow around the throne. We had uh, the the uh, whole altar scene, these things that represented God's covenant with his people. And now we have the Ark of the Covenant, a reminder to his people of the covenant that he had made with them. And that covenant's not only present, but it is there with power. And in chapter 12, we find some of the most vivid imagery that describes not just what's been happening behind the scenes, but now puts into play specific characters that that we have in flesh and blood terms. Um, But these characters, as personified as they are, are again symbols. We get to chapter 12, and we're told this, and John read this this morning. He said, um, I don't know, uh, I won't worry about it. Uh, He said it was an interesting passage to choose. We'll leave it there. It says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days, or roughly three and a half years. I want to share this with you this morning, uh, this this image that I found uh, of the woman and the dragon. If you take a look on your your screen here, you'll see that this is a very fantastical uh, image. It's it's like something you would see on the cover of a fantasy novel. Um, I really like it because I think it it portrays well the image that we've just seen described. John is using vivid imagery because that's what he's seeing. But the reason that God is showing him this imagery is because it's supposed to invoke a number of stories that the people of Israel would have been familiar with, that the, the early church, as readers of the Old Testament, 
would have been familiar with. First of all, we have this dragon. And later in the book of Revelation, we'll be told that the dragon is the serpent of old. It's the the devil. It is the Satan. It is this creature uh, that is the forces of darkness or the power behind the spiritual forces of darkness. It is um, the great antagonist of not God, but humanity. Uh, Antagonizing God is kind of a difficult concept because God is beyond uh, contention in many ways. Uh, You can't usurp God. But this dragon places himself in opposition to humanity. Uh, He chooses this role for himself in the grand scheme of things. The woman represents... A great number of things, and I couldn't find a picture where it was a beautiful picture, but also the woman looked genuinely pregnant. Uh, she doesn't look very far along, like there's no imminence to her uh, delivery, like is described in chapter 12. Um, but this this woman is supposed to be radiant, beautiful, uh, something that, that we would recognize as um, worthy, maybe, of God's love. Uh, uh, the target of God's d- desire uh, that he he wants a relationship with this individual. She's she's radiant. She's clothed in glory and has these seven stars. Uh, the crown itself doesn't mean that she's divine. It means it's been given to her by the divine Creator. It is hers, and God has given it as a gift. Uh, there's some significance between this woman and God. And when we look at her, when we think about the description of her in scripture, one of the things that we should be drawn to is this idea of all the significant women in scripture that we're told about. Uh, Going all the way back to the book of Genesis, we have Eve, who is the, the mother who gives birth to a child who has been told that the child that she will bear will crush the serpent's head. Uh, We've been uh, reminded through this, not just of Eve, but also of Israel, who is the bride of God, who has been given a special crown by God to be, in many ways, his his wife, the, the love of his life, the one he's dedicated himself to and has a special purpose for. And out of her would come a child who would set things right, a king who would rule, a messiah who would sit on a throne. We should be reminded of Mary to some extent, not because Mary herself is uh, is a divine being, but because in her we see this, this promise fulfilled that through the woman, a child would be born who would set things right, who would have victory, the messiah who would sit on the throne of David. We should also see in this woman the church, God's bride, who will be described further in the book of Revelation, uh, the one that God is pursuing, the one that God provides care and rescue for. Sometimes we want to place an individual into this position here. We want to maybe take a historical perspective and say that this woman is only the nation of Israel. Uh, we might want to look and say that this woman is only the church, or, or that uh, in extreme times, uh, as we make Mary more and more important in religion, that this woman only represents Mary. But this is supposed to represent the one through whom the Redeemer will come, and then also the one whom God will take as his bride. 
she stands in jeopardy because of the position of the dragon, the serpent, this power of darkness. In many ways, the woman represents the humanity that God desires to redeem, which is all of humanity, but specifically those who will be redeemed, those who have been claimed by him, those who have been given the divine crown to rule alongside God. We've talked about that idea of rule being a significant part of the book of Revelation. I know I'm running long here, uh, but I have a couple more quick points I want to make. So in addition to the woman and the dragon, we are then introduced to two beasts. In chapter 13, um, we read about the first beast. Uh, And I, I know I've skipped a big section of chapter 12 here. Essentially, it tells us about the Satan, the dragon, being cast down to the earth. He's thrown out of his position in heaven because he has pursued mankind uh, to devour it. But then we're told about this this first beast. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. And it goes on to describe this, this crazy creature that's a conglomeration of many created things. When the word beast is used in the New Testament, it's talking about created things, not necessarily created by God, but things that exist within creation. And so the first beast here represents something that exists within creation. It's not just uh, behind creation. It's not happening only in the spiritual realm. It is physically present in a way that we could recognize and tangibly say exists. This beast is given the power of the dragon. And the dragon has claimed for itself the world as its sphere of influence. And so these, these, this beast represents uh, power within this world, a ruling power within this world. Um, you can strike it down, but it comes back. It talks about it having a, a head wound. And it seems that even if its head is wounded, it still, still returns from the dead. It rises again. Um, this first beast is intended to represent Rome, but not just Rome. Uh, later, it will be called Babylon. Uh, it will be referred to as Babylon because Babylon to the ancient people, specifically those in the time of the New Testament church, represented any nation that opposed God's people, that opposed the work of God in the world, that maybe prevented God's people from truly worshiping him and following him in the way that he desired. He's been given power, and the power that this this beast has is intrinsically linked to the spiritual forces of darkness. And I don't want to put too fine a point on it this morning, but I, I do want to say that any time that we offer our allegiance first and foremost to a kingdom of this world, we are offering our allegiance to this first beast. There is no kingdom in the world that deserves our allegiance before God. And there are many kingdoms in this world that would take our allegiance and they would point it away from God. They would necessarily diminish our allegiance to God by our allegiance to that kingdom. And if the first beast can't do it by himself, 
we have a second beast that plays the similar role of pointing us towards the first beast, who points us back to the dragon. The second beast appears uh, later on in chapter 13. We're told, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. This is a false lamb. Remember that our lamb has seven horns. Uh, This lamb has two. Uh, it's, It's an ordinary thing. Uh, that is trying to pass as extraordinary. It speaks like a dragon. It has the voice of the dragon, uh, which means its words are the words of the dragon. And although it may be parading around as something worthy of our worship, it is definitely something that represents this spiritual force of darkness. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth And its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It Also, it causes all both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. A whole bunch of numerology happening in these passages here. Uh, it's it's easy for us to misconstrue some of what we're reading right here. Um, I'm going to appeal again to that great pop cultural pho- phenomenon, uh, the Left Behind series, in which the mark of the beast was a, a, a stamp that you could get on your hand, a tattoo you could get on your hand or your forehead. If you were really allegiant, your forehead would have it, and you could go and do commerce, and uh, it, was, it was the image of the Antichrist, uh, It's a fantastical idea, but it's not what's being talked about here. What's being talked about here, remember that the seal that is given to God's people on their forehead and on their hand represents that God and his things, the things of God, have become integrated into the reality of the being of the person that bears that image, that stamp. Uh, The works of their hands are dedicated to God's works. The, The thoughts of their minds are dedicated to God's works. Here... When an individual is sealed by these beasts, it means that they have dedicated their hands or their their heads or both to the ways, the thoughts, the works of this world. Last week we talked about the 144,000 who do not participate in tribulation. And the tribulation is not a set period of time. It is it is the unspooling of creation in many ways. It's the the breaking and fracturing of humanity. It's the wicked works of the world. 144,000 are called out of those works. Here, a not insignificant portion of humanity dedicates themselves to these works. And they do it because they're deceived by some system in the world. Uh, A system that maybe finds itself Uh, dedicated to the powers of this world. And those powers in this world derive their power 
from the spiritual forces of darkness. Now, to be fair, we are told that God has given rulers authority. And so we don't, we don't want to say that uh, every ruler that has ever existed is a wicked and evil person, but we want to recognize that the systems and powers of this world, they stand in defiance of the kingdom of heaven. Their existence is a defiance of the kingdom of heaven. And at their best, they're benign. And at their worst, they lead us into the worship of things that defy God. Last point, I promise. This has been a really long sermon and I apologize, but it's, it's a lot of stuff to cover. I should have broken it up into smaller chunks. Then I looked and behold, this is chapter 14, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, And with him a hundred and forty-four thousand who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the hundred and forty-four thousand who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have been defiled, uh, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who have followed the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. And here's what happens we see the destruction. We see the beasts that are ruling this world, the systems that contribute to the falsehoods of the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms that are offering allegiance to the spiritual forces of darkness, whether they know it or not. And we're reminded again that the Lamb will be triumphant, that his people have opted out of participation in the things of this world. Not only are they marked as not participating, but they literally stand apart with the Lamb. They literally stand in in a complete contrast to the things that are happening in the world. Instead of getting themselves involved in the corrupted and twisted forms of government and, and uh, control that our world utilizes as tools that cause harm to humanity, they have opted to follow the true king. They have opted to participate in what it is that he has called them to, and their hands and their hearts are dedicated to him and his works. And there is a harvest that is had. This chapter finishes off with the harvest, and it is both a a beautiful image of God coming to claim his own, and also the beginning of a very, very powerful image of the wrath of God. Um, A wrath that is poured out on all the things that have corrupted God's will for his creation. The book of Revelation is not about a specific government 
or a specific individual or a specific system that fights against the kingdom of heaven. It is that all governments, all systems, all people who choose to stand in defiance of God are less than the kingdom of heaven. And none of them are worthy of our allegiance. None of them are truly worthy of our allegiance. If our, op- uh, if our option is to worship God or the images in this world. And that's really difficult for a lot of us to accept. It's a really difficult idea for most of us to integrate into our lives. It's not to say that we can't be proud of where we've come from, of the country that we're born into, but if that pride overshadows our allegiance to our God, it is pointing us towards a thing that we should not associate with, a thing that prevents us from standing apart and pulls us into relationship with powers and systems that we should not have a relationship with. I want to pray about this uh, together today, and then uh, we will wrap up our lesson and move into the remainder of our time of worship. Let's pray. Our Father, we so often get it wrong. Like Israel, we find ourselves calling for a king. We want a king. We want a, a man to rule over us like all the nations around us. And we will gladly, oftentimes, accept the first person that comes along that says that they are for us, even if their actions and their words ultimately uh, betray them and show that they are not, in fact, your person, that they are not, in fact, your kingdom. And God, we we pray that you give us mercy when we have forgotten uh, what it means to be a part of your kingdom, to be apart from the systems and powers of this world, and to stand for your truth and your justice, to stand for your righteousness, to participate in your works. And any time that any system or kingdom or person defies you, we are called to stand in opposition to them. To proclaim loudly the truth of the gospel. To dedicate our hands to your works, even if they are in defiance of the works of the systems and powers of this world. Help us to be bold. Help us to be courageous. Count us among the 144,000, the fullness of your army, the fullness of those who sing your praises, the fullness of those who have dedicated our hearts and our hands to your work. I pray, God, that you would help us to read Revelation, not as some prediction about what will happen in the future, although it may be that, not just as a story that happened long ago, although it may be that too. Help us to read it as though it applies to us today and tomorrow and forever. And we thank you for your son, Jesus, who has given us the opportunity to be called out of the world, to literally be your church, your ecclesia. Help us to actually be that in our day-to-day lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, uh, we're going to be led in our communion thought uh, by Stan Kinzig, and uh, I want to encourage you to to think on these things as we uh, move into that time of communion.
Good morning, everybody. It's a great Sunday morning here. We're sharing the uh, Lord's Supper this morning. I have a few thoughts about uh, imitation. I thought it would be interesting to uh, speak a little bit about it. I know myself. Oh, by the way, Donna says hi. But uh, if you look at me, you probably, with my characters and things, you can probably think of uh, Bert and Elsie, my mom and dad. And with Donna, it would be uh, her mom and dad, Henry and Mildred. So she's uh, imitated a lot of their characteristics and things. But I think Peter and uh, Paul have something else to say about that. I have a scripture to read. Starting in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So again, that's Paul talking to the church at Ephesus there, and he continues in Ephesians 5.1. So therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. So again, that's uh, Paul speaking about uh, don't imitate him, but imitate Christ. And then Peter goes into a little bit on 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Peter sums up, he says, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So let's now bless the bread and the cup of fruit that we can celebrate God and Jesus and our spirit that we've been given. Father God in heaven, we're just so thankful today to gather in spirit as we gather around each of our own tables, we will gather the bread in front of us. Father, bless, bless this bread as we partake of it. May we think of you. May we imitate you more and more each day. May the world be out of our life and may our new heaven be in the way we uh, speak to each other. Thank you again for this uh, bread to remind us of the body of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now go ahead and grab your cup. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this fruit of the vine that we celebrate again, the blood of Christ that was given. We know that the scripture said there's life in the blood and we thank you, Father, that Jesus shed his blood for us that we can become God's children. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
We want to remind you uh, that there are opportunities for you to give at this time. Uh, of course, we have a lot of work that we're doing as a congregation, um, opportunities for us to serve, uh, people to bless. And so we want to remind you and encourage you to continue to give as you have the opportunity to give. Uh, and there are a number of ways you can do that. I'll remind you again, you can mail a check, drop it off at the church building, set up bill pay through your bank, or you can give online through the church website or through a link in the description on this video. Uh, we're going to continue in our worship this morning with some songs, and I invite you to worship along with us today. 